Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance, and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. Today, I'm looking forward to talking to Sian Wirasinger. I've actually known Sian since college, but it took us a little while to realize we'd both ended up in internet marketing. Since getting into digital at eBay, as one of a cohort of incredibly talented folks in the UK digital industry, who are now scattered doing interesting things all around the UK startup scene, he's run growth at The Guardian, following their massive domain migration in 2013, been CMO at cool travel company Secret Escapes, and is now CMO at Wise, previously TransferWise. Guess he just can't avoid being suckered in by big domain moves. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with CN. Sian, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think you've had a, a fascinating career up to this point, and I, I want to hear more about all the twists and turns that that journey has taken. <laughs> so I thought maybe a great place to start would be about the career side of things. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like you can attribute your career success and the career direction to? What are the big decisions you made, and, and what do you look back on with joy? Wow, uh, with joy. Gosh, and it's been quite a long path, and I often say it's been like quite a wiggly path to get to experience some of the things I feel like I've been able to contribute to. A lot of it, I think, when I look back, is the people I got to meet over time and maintaining those relationships over the long term. Uh, So I started my career at Capital One, and I was 22 years later. I was joyfully discovering that Matt, who worked at Capital One in the same cohort, was our CFO at Wise, and we had a lot of commonality. I'm also quite proud that I've had 10 jobs, I think, majority of them were got because I knew the person. Yep. And that was just compounding networks over time. And then challenged myself to work at places where everyone was better than me. And hopefully that would <laughs> also help build those networks over time. And the other thing was I, I made a few somewhere between accident and being deeply thoughtful. I identified things that I wanted to get more experience of, which were adjacent to what I had learned. Yeah. But I predict that I probably need to, to be better than rubbish at and try to get that experience over my career, whether it's through consulting, through doing slightly adjacent jobs, or through just like spending time within a role in domains I wasn't hugely comfortable with. Yeah, you mentioned the connections to people there, and that's probably one of the things that over the years I've seen you do most, you know, is build up, cultivate, and connect people. And you've had a, a couple of key moments, like for me, looking from the outside in, eBay is one of those just hotbeds of UK talent. Yep. It feels like, you know, that cohort that you were there with, that, I mean, they're everywhere now in all kinds of incredible senior positions, aren't they? So when you look at those people you've worked with over the years and you look at, the, I guess, the, the very best of them, mm-hmm. what have you looked up to or what, what do you feel like you've learned? Yeah, because it was quite that, um, that eBay moment was quite a, a turning point for me in my career. And I, I, if, I, if Claire Johnson from the Up Group is listening, she really was like fundamental to that. Mm-hmm. It was at eBay where I met uh, Ellen as well. So uh, yeah, who's my wife? Big personal impact as well. Yeah, totally. I was really uncertain what I was going to do with my life just before that job. I had bumbled along doing data warehousing, a bit of analysis, all the way through in financial services because that was probably like a sensible career choice. Yeah, I was not really enjoying, but I, I loved the internet. Like, I'm a mad. I just loved the internet. I loved eBay, right? Like yeah. buying and selling random bits and bobs and buying crazy things. Yeah. And, Claire called me and was like, yeah, there's a job going at eBay. I was like, wow, what does this exist? And I remember I went to the interview and 
so we both went to the same college. My college mum was interviewing me, so a lady called Middle Shah. And she was like, you? I'm like, oh, God. You know, <laughs> I, I had some priors that, that live in your memory forever. And I was, I think, stunned. Capital One and eBay were very deliberate about hiring incredibly high caliber people. And I excused myself from that group because I was kind of off to both those jobs wondering what I was doing there. And almost like people didn't realize they were hiring that caliber of employee. And I think they were able to get, bring people who had great, interesting experience. And often, sometimes it was like a lot of ex-consultants and MBAs, and then make them do tactical work. So not just think, <laughs> but also yeah. do. Some of the learnings, like there's a chap called Pete Wade, who's CEO at Trainline now, I think. Amazing guy. I love him dearly. And he was the one who taught me about the sniff test. Like He was like, you can look at data all day long. You can do analysis till you go blue in the face. But you're going to have to learn over a period of time how to detect if something doesn't smell good. Right. And that's quite a hard muscle. My team hates me for this. I remember our old CFO and COO in, in distilled days would hate the way that they'd be working on a spreadsheet for hours and multiple people would look at it. And yeah. then I'd be like, but wait, like that number there doesn't kind of look right. And they'd be like, what, what do yeah. you mean it doesn't look right? It's a spreadsheet. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, but there's, there's got to be a mistake because that, that number isn't right. So I know, I know exactly what you mean there. And I agree. Yeah, su- super powerful skill, actually. Very interesting tactical one. Have you ever thought about teaching that deliberately to people? I do it like not explicitly. I do it through how I challenge people's mm-hmm. assumptions. Right. And I do try to explain. And your team comes to you with something. Yeah. And I'd be like, but what do we need to believe in for this to be true? And just check yourself when you work through your assumptions of like these ranges. Like, because sometimes you'll get to an assumption where you're like, this is going to be really hard, like for this assumption to hold. Like, if you just right. step back and smell it. Yeah. But. Some of it is just a little bit of maths and some of it is experience. And I'm, sometimes I'm never sure quite what the balance is between the two of having like seen it like 15 versions of a plan go wrong. Yeah. I mean, there's no advanced maths, right? You're not doing any calculus or anything. No, no, no. You're just, just some timesing and multiple. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So like, it is basic spreadsheet stuff. But the other one I think that's somewhat interesting I found is trying to get a sense of scale or you yeah. know, like, bigness of lots of things. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How big is the UK economy? How big is the budget of a major corporation? How like just orders of magnitude, like, not down to the magnitude. Yeah, and yeah, I, I feel like it, I hate it when I, I'm reading news stories now, and you know they're, they're talking about how many billion or something. And you're like, eh, really though? And like, yeah, don't buy it. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think you can see right through an interview process why those much hated estimation case study questions were used mm. to force people to have like a natural muscle around uh, computing scale quickly. Yeah. A boss many jobs later used to do that live mentally in the mental arithmetic in meetings and would quiz me on my version of that number. <laughs> and I'd be sat there like dumbfounded, like, I don't know how you did that maths. And I walked away going, I need to learn. So I went on YouTube and found all the tricks to do multiple times tables. And I used mm-hmm. to just practice it on the way to work at the age That's of 25. <laughs> I just learned how do I, how do I do percentages quickly? How do I times two digit numbers to work together quickly? You're well set up for the ages of your kids now, then. That's perfect. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, one of our key stage two learnings. Uh, I've taught them how to do the nine times table quickly. Because in an interview, someone asked me to do 99 times 99. I was like, oh, I don't know. And then there's a trick to it. So Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that, and I think, like you said, that smell capability is this sort of commercial add-on you sort of bolt onto your capability mm. versus your specialism which like you say can get you can be so narrow you can't quantify scale 
of where you're narrowly focusing. Yeah, lose sight of the context. No, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I actually heard you tell the story about being interviewed by your college mom. I think it was on Timo's. Oh yes, podcast. yes, of course. Sorry, I repeat um, myself. No, no, it's uh, it's good. But it was funny because the, the context is obviously yeah, we went to the same university, same college, and that is such a weird and unpredictable part of our histories. I, I, I don't think either of us knew what we were getting into, really, by the sounds of things. I don't really remember. This was like 2009. I was leaving eBay and Twitter suddenly became a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think someone retweeted you. And I was like, W. Critchlow? Is that the same guy who played basketball at university? Is he doing this internet stuff? I think I pinged it. I was like, are you the same yeah. guy? Are we in the same industry somehow? Like, That's right. It must have been around then because, yeah, I hadn't kept track of what you're up to, obviously. And yeah, the yeah, same yeah. thing. Yeah. And so with Middle, I was like, you work at an internet company? Like, isn't this like Pets.com 2000? Like, why are you doing this in 2006? <laughs> I was very yeah. baffled that. Uh, I, was like, I thought it was just for the weirdos and the nerds. But uh, yeah, it was great journeys. Mm. I think the way you phrased it on Timo's podcast was you had to convince her that you weren't a complete degenerate, was the, 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 <laughs> <laughs> the words you used. But there's a, there's a serious point in here, though, of how do you think about professionalism? as you get kind of, you know, more senior in your career. And you know, we, we've both been in plenty of kind of private situations where everybody's much more laid back. I mean, work situations, but, you know, yeah. you're not tweeting stuff on the internet and everybody's much more laid back. But there's obviously still lines. And like, how, how do you figure out what's appropriate, what's not, how to be interesting and human and yeah. maybe even funny, right? But also yeah. professional and the right amount grown up. Even we did this thing called situational leadership, like how you adopt also your style based on context. And I think that was very much about the context of um, delegation and managing someone, depending on their capability yeah. and their motivation. But I think that style alteration, deliberateness is quite important of mm. being able to understand the situation and land the right level of brevity to seriousness, as well as being able to judge reactions where you feel like you can start on one track and realize it's not really the right place <laughs> in time. Shut you back away, yeah. Yeah, and I think there is a credibility thing you have to like manage with the ability to be quite uh, approachable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a balancing act, and I think you just have to be getting feedback from your team of whether you're striking that right balance. Yeah, it's interesting because, because I feel like some of the people I enjoy the company of most and have got a lot out of, again, in, in the business context, they're not always the most buttoned-up, serious people, right? <laughs> obviously, and I think that's natural. But we also all know people who cross that line who go too yeah. far. And I think one of the things I kind of worry about, I mean, for all of us, but especially for the generation growing up now, is that you talk about kind of situational awareness, but you get a kind of situational collapse where, yeah, yeah. you know, somebody might be recording a talk you give that's supposed to be off the record or the way social media plays into all of those kind of things. Or even, mm. you know, the trend of a lot of people like delete their old tweets or whatever, because you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I forget the quote, but, you know, the give me seven lines of written by whoever and you know, I'm totally mangly it, but basically look at enough stuff that somebody's written and they will have said something suitably oh. offensive. And uh, I don't know, I don't really have a question there, but that's something I worry about. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I think everyone has to like, this is, like, is work family. Like, like, and I think some people, especially for that period where we hired so many people remote, like where you don't have a chance to build culture with proximity it's hard, quite hard to course correct norms yeah. being formed that are just not cool so that, that mm. definitely can happen like just not cool i think there's a great benefit for everyone to have this camaraderie which often is with levity and humor 
but also have the seriousness of when work needs to get done or when shit hits the fan. And I think you have to role model that seriousness Mm -hmm. when things are deeply important. And then make sure you also, like in terms of norms, try to reset stuff you think where people haven't really understood those boundaries. Yeah, one of the more challenging bits of of leadership is the fact that it falls to you to be the one who Mm. says guys not cool <laughs> like, not cool yeah that's not appropriate and sometimes do that in public right in the moment not just yeah, yeah, when yeah. you've got a chance to think about it and construct your thoughts and speak to hr <laughs> and whatever else no, like, no, yeah you know you've got to do it right there and then it's quite hard to uh, you don't want to well you should expect some challenge to why you're saying it's not cool but yeah sometimes you don't want to have a debate about ethics or morality or free speech yeah. at the time mm-hmm. sometimes things are just like it's just not cool Definitely as part of like how you want to think about values and culture and as well as feedback loops as well. Because it's quite hard yeah. to give that feedback of like, it wasn't cool what you said or what you did. It's hard to receive as well. Hard, hard to hear that yeah, feedback, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. Awkward, potentially, all around. <laughs> Tricky question about spin. Like, do you remember a time when, that you can talk about, when, as you say, the shit was hitting the fan and you had to suddenly flip from, you know, I'm Sian, you're not friend exactly, you know, I'm probably still your yeah. boss, but, you know, we get on and we have fun and... No, now we need to buckle up and this is for real. Yeah, I mean, probably won't have specifics here, but generally where we've had like crisis, we've had in my career many crisis situations from whether there's points during COVID at Secret Escapes to like uh, recent moments here where I think, you know, you trust your team and at Wise we trust our team deeply to this autonomous team structure. But there are moments where the moment requires you to take the handle of the tiller, going to get my ship metaphors incorrect. <laughs> Yeah. And be incredibly clear and directive and mm. make decisions yourself and like navigate your way through. And people will look to you to do that. And you can't waver in those moments. And I think I've had to learn how to get better at that every time it's happened. Because some points there's not enough time to and these are not like long term fundamental challenges that you know play out in six months. These are things that happen like over two days where you just need to navigate it. Yep. And I think as long as you're very explicit, out loud, transparent, and confident, and you might not be confident internally, but you're going to have to pick a project to play. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to portray it that we're doing this, we're doing this, this is the next thing we do. You guys should be thinking about this. We've solved this, this bit of information, and then that's the next thing we'll do. That's some of yeah. that is like, I'm, I was never good at it. I mean, just through practice, and some people are naturally. Yeah. I think it's a learned skill for most people, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I think part of it for me was also realizing it is difficult you've got to pick one of them you might be wrong but also the team wants it in those moments yeah yeah yeah. they're looking for somebody to say we're doing this more than they're looking for the perfect answer most of the time yeah exactly also that you uh, don't ignore people's feedback Mm, yeah but you can make that next decision and i think the thing is just avoiding those sort of one-way doors as you go through that decision tree or at least realizing when you're at one. Yeah, and just like, okay, fine, I know it's one way. We're going to make a real commitment going down this route. And sometimes you have to work out how much you trust your smell and how much you need advice. And in those moments of crisis, not to be too arrogant to think you know best. Yeah, it's a very difficult line to tread, yeah. I think, isn't it? You mentioned in-person and, and building kind of culture and values. Are you back in the office every day? What has the team? Yeah, so I'm, yeah, so we are, we've got, pretty cool offices here with lots of dogs in it so <laughs> you do get to see the full range of uh, dog sizes um <laughs> we are back some are tiny some are like horses 
Uh, we're back between one to two days a week. I'm in two days a week. I still work four days. But basically, we told the teams, and this is a really hard one to thread. Like, I tried to give them enough context to help them design their own hybrid working plan by team, just given there is nuance. But I think it's very easy to forget like social capital, which like was built over time historically. And yeah. uh, especially for new people, where sometimes, you know, we've been a little bit more explicit saying like when someone joins and on board, you need to be there more often. Yeah. But it's absolutely healing today and it's joyous. Like the boss is pretty, it's good vibes at the moment. Yeah, yeah. We're doing a similar kind of blend. And one of the weird things I miss is Fridays in the office because nobody ever picks Friday as being the kind of, you know, oh, let's go in on Friday. Yeah, yeah. But Thursday's no substitute for Friday. No. In the actual, that you know, that kind of chill... You're actually getting some deep work done, but it's Friday afternoon, and exactly, it's just it's real starting. Life. You can, you can, yeah, you can feel the weekend coming, and yeah. I miss sharing that kind of feeling. But yeah, I think that's a lost cause. I don't think I'm getting anybody back into the office on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, we do do lunch. We do a little bit of like carrots, literal carrots of uh, <laughs> literal carrots. lunch, literal carrots uh, of yeah, breakfast on Mondays and lunches on Fridays, and I think it's helped a little bit. Yeah. I think it's a compounding thing. Like for a long period, people were coming in. Like, what's the point of me being here? This like one person, it's a ghost town. Absolutely, it's a, a kind of a reverse prisoners dilemma or something. It's kind of everybody wants mm. everybody to be in more, but nobody wants to go in more. But in case no one, yeah, some some game theorists is there, like uh, puzzling, <laughs> cackling, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah. Like at a game theory theorist consultancy office, how many people are in the office? No one. It's always empty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a Nash equilibrium. <laughs> But they always they'll never close the office, just in case. Yeah, just in case. I mean, there, there will be those consultancies out there. I can't remember what's the name of. There's some consultancy we, I worked with alongside back in the day, because my last proper job before working for myself was right. like telecoms consulting, oh, right, right, right. strategy consulting in the telecoms industry. Yep. And we did a lot of work for Ofcom. We did some work on the auctions that Ofcom. Used oh, of course, I remember. That, that was sort of my, my academic yeah, background yeah. was in that side of things. And I've forgotten the name of the firm now, but there was basically a firm that was specialist in, in exactly that, like basically Amazing. auction theory, yeah, advising yeah. the bidders, advising the, the people designing the auction as well. Uh, anyway, I, I could geek out about that for hours. Can I ask you how you ended up from consulting telecoms businesses to your journey? Absolutely. So there's a little diversion in there. So basically, before, before we met, before I went to university, I was dabbling on the internet, right? in some of the same ways that you described. I remember when we first got the internet at school in maybe 94, and it was like one chemistry teacher had dial up in his classroom. And he was like, look at this amazing thing. (laughs) And then the first time having it at home and all of those kind of eras. And so Duncan Morris, my co-founder at Distilled and Now in Search Pilot, he and I went to the same school. Oh, of course, yeah. We were friends at school. We played basketball together. And we basically both geeked out about this kind of emerging internet thing. And it, it solved just some really tactical problems. Like we... For our, some of our friends' 18th birthdays, we wrote them little books that were like oh. little silly picture book type things. But we didn't have internet at home, so we used to have to oh. bring a floppy disk into school every day and swap our drafts back and forth with each other. Oh and my like, god, it's amazing. The moment when we could email them to each other was like, oh my god, our workflow has improved like you know, <laughs> how many times. And so we started building websites in the late 90s before going to university. And actually had a small company doing that. It was kind of a little freelancy type of thing, all kinds of adventures for another day. But we thought about going and doing that without going to university, just like, let's start a business together. Okay, right. Business was really the driver. We wanted to run a business together. Right. And internet was the thing we were passionate about. This was the early dot-com kind of bubble yeah. starting to get frothy. So every day you'd read the newspaper and it would be, you know, 
suchandsuch.com has raised how much to revolutionize the industry for whatever. Obviously, those businesses are now successful. Versions of them are now successful, but not all of them. It wasn't the time in the late 90s, necessarily. But anyway, saying our heads prevailed. We both went off to university, different universities, but we moved to London at the same time after university. Ah. So he did a, a four-year degree in Scotland, which has the entry-level year, and I did a one-year part three, you know, master's stuff. Oh, of course, yeah. We ended up leaving university at the same time, moved to London together, couldn't afford to start that business we'd always talked about, and moved to London. So we went and got proper jobs for a bit. And he worked in insurance and, and data warehousing. I initially worked in more like financial consulting. They called themselves strategy consultants, but it was really yeah. more like IT and finance. And so yeah. I wanted to get more into real strategy stuff. Did that at, um, at what at the time was called analysis for 18 months or so. And then, yeah, we were like, well, we're 25. We don't have a mortgage or kids yet. If we're going to do this Let's business do thing, we should do it now because it's only going to get harder. And because um, we were bootstrapping from nothing. So. And that was distilled. That became distilled, yeah. It's about a year in, we were like, let's make a company and actually do it properly. So we started out building small business websites, basically. Yeah. And then all those clients were asking us, how do we get visible? SEO. Yeah, the rest is history, basically. Oh, very cool. Which is perhaps a segue into the SEO side of things. So obviously, you know, SEO isn't everything for your role, but SEO is an no. important channel in what you do now and, and in places you've been before that. So I'm particularly interested in like senior marketing management and oversight of yeah. SEO. So how do you think about holding your SEO team to account? What do you ask them to you know, report to you on? How do you think about targets? That, like, how do you think about that whole world? I was very blessed. Uh, you probably know Fabrizio mm -hmm. to have like, his leadership and capability in the organization when I joined. I obviously have an appreciation of the domain. I sort of dabbled personally as well as helped on the domain migration at The Guardian. Yep. And what was impressive here, and I, I don't think I've tinkered with it too much, is how the team have aligned the KPIs, the short and long-term KPIs of investing in SEO. Mm -hmm. How do you think about the actual investments, whether it's people, freelancers, tech, and then how do you start correlating that with growth, whether it's at the midterm or longer term, and making sure the teams are as autonomously aligned to success themselves so they know, I've done this, it's got better and I'm confident that this number gets better we deliver our North Star yeah teams aren't too far removed from North Star from like our their day-to-day -day metrics in terms of like mm -hmm. logical jumps and we give them broad investment parameters which you know always need a bit of tweaking that's where I spend most of my time thinking about but yeah apart from that they are not free but broadly mm -hmm. allowed to decide how they want to grow empowered to just like Higher, you know, and, and I think accountability and autonomy are your sort of things that have to hold each other close together. The accountability side is that everyone has to share their plans publicly every quarter and get feedback on them and share your mm -hmm. intros publicly. And you should yeah. respond to the feedback, either like, cool, I'm ignoring you because of why, or awesome, I'm going to adjust my plan. Yeah. And I think there's a very strong philosophy around that side of the accountability equation for autonomy. Yeah. So it's a hard one because SEO, like when we think about budgeting, is a you compare it like paid media on a spreadsheet, spend fully loaded versus impact, but it's not. It's a like a, in itself like a cohort model where people build content and that content generates value over time. Yeah. So the money I invest in SEO today is not related really to the amount of users I get from SEO today. Totally. And whereas paid is fairly closely aligned, right? My paid investment yeah. on a DR basis. And whereas things like product and engineering probably smell a bit more like SEO and things like 
potential brand investment is a bit like that, where you have this lag and you want to work out how. And, and, and the joy of SEO is that, you know, because there's no media component, your economics are much more interesting. Mm. The question there is like, how do you think about elasticity of scaling SEO yeah. when you only have that vertical view of impact versus investment? So something we're thinking about right now. Yeah, there's some similarity in the same way that, you know, your marketing spends this quarter, even your direct ones, your media spend and so forth, even if they acquire top of funnel this quarter, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily this quarter's revenue. No. So that you've got that kind of lag, but then you've also got that characteristic of SEO, or like you said, same, same with brand, really, where you've got kind of residual value. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're building, in some sense, an asset. But yeah, really fascinating. And I think, like, we do try to expose that asset value at a page level. So, like, every team understands, like, what they built, how much that page has generated, how the performance of that page improves or decays over time. Should we build new content or try and, like, optimize existing content? Like it's that level of granularity and ability to track a metric to it, wherever it is down the funnel, where it's useful, I think gives us those levers to decide where to spend the next hour or time or dollar of investment. Yes, because I think it's also closely related to another topic that I've heard you talk about before and I know you're kind of passionate about, of incrementality. Because yep. you, you, you've got not only the kind of elasticity of next dollar spent, but also the, okay, we acquire a user, but... How incremental is that? Yeah. And I guess maybe that's a bit less pressing in SEO because you know, you're not paying per click in the same way. Exactly. So the, the economics are a bit more favorable. I was talking to somebody the other day at really big co, so kind of think the kind of place that has their name on the NFL or NBA stadiums oh, right, okay. in, in the US. And they were talking about how within the SEO team, so this was a senior SEO leader saying that they were saying that they're only allowed to kind of take credit for, I think it was like 40% of even what they think is incremental. So they have their, their kind of models that spit out incremental okay. benefit. And then you know, somebody kind of comes along with a red pen and says, yeah, but 60% <laughs> of that you only managed to do because you're at, it wasn't Salesforce, but you, know, you only managed to do that because you're at Salesforce and it's on the salesforce.com domain. And we- Ah, uh, okay, right, right. And so everything is easier and gets more results than it would do yeah. at a kind of smaller organization. But they just had this really blunt instrument, like just across the board chopping. saying, yeah, okay, fine, great. You're delivering this much revenue according to all of the models that we have. Mm. You get credit for X percent of it, which seemed a bit, I mean, seemed a bit of a blunt tool to me, but was interesting. I was at this Facebook event where Javier, the COO, who used to be VP of Growth, was speaking. He's a super impressive, he's Alex Schultz's boss, I think. And those two are yeah. like the smartest people. Well, I know Alex very well. He's the smartest guy I know. And Javier seems to be, a, again, a very impressive figure. I mean, if Alex respects him, then... Yeah, you've got to believe that. Humble dude. And he made this really good point of like, you need teams to be able to understand what is in their control versus out of their control. Like what is exogenous or like how much of their growth is just happening to them yeah. versus how much of their growth is they're able to influence. Then there's a secondary debate of how much credit they should get for it and whether that would bias your investment decision. And maybe when I say it doesn't, like if, you, if you, like in that case you said, you gave them 100% versus only 40% you'd still make the same decision of where to put the next dollar. But the paid side is the biggest like pile of spaghetti where you're really in this like hall of mayhem around thinking about uh, incrementality across all the different ad platforms, challenges of the measurement. You know, yeah. like, that one gives me more heartburn than the organic side. Well, and also the swings in the numbers are so big, aren't they? The, the fact that you can deploy that budget in an instant or waste that budget. In an instant. Oh my God, is, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, horrifying. Those are all one-way doors. You're like, oops, yeah, I just spent that amount of money on the ad campaign. I'm going to have to explain that in the next uh, 
maybe not even quarterly retrospective. But oh, really? um, <laughs> so you mentioned you spent a lot of time thinking about that kind of budget mix. Yeah. Where have you kind of got to on thinking about that? Do you kind of start with a big pie and say, right, I've got, you know, X million to spend, I'm going to divvy it up across channels like this? Or do, no. you, do you kind of go more bottom up? How do you think about it? So like very much bottom up, the thing you probably need to be clear on and we need, I need to get better at is setting like the parameters or like rough context for how marketing want to grow versus how the business is growing. Because if marketing say we want to quadruple spend, but the business is only expected to grow less than quadruple, you kind of have a little bit of like a thought experiment to go through about why. So not just like the context of the shape of the curves of the different parts of the org, but also like the economic parameters around their dollars. Like you should be optimizing to this level of ROI, and this is why, or this this payback number. But then we go bottom up, and that's because the teams know are much closer to how their channels scale and the elasticities. And then, like, there's a beautiful theoretical piece of work, which we did at eBay, which was middle-led, which really was like, you know, average ROI is X, but there's a bunch of stuff on the margin, which is ugly as hell. That's all negative, right? Right. And we probably should cut our marketing budget because, like, there's no real incremental growth of this extra spend. It's not very interesting. And it was a really powerful thing to work with someone who uh, told finance we should cut marketing budget. Yeah. Finance were like, okay, that's pretty sensible. I don't think we've got to that level of sophistication where I'm sort of trying to make these like last dollar incremental trade-offs between channels, but that's the sort of thing we want to get to where you know channels feel they have an understanding of where their next ten thousand pounds or hundred thousand pounds, how effective it is. Yeah. And we ask be able to somehow translate that as like, is there anywhere else we could put it? Because mm. for us, if we can't put it anywhere that's effective, we want to give it back to the customers and reduce the price of the product. So that's quite a good forcing function. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, obviously very mission aligned for yeah. you there's quite a lot of this that it sounds like this is basically your job right it's, yeah. it's effectively and efficiently allocating across all these things but from time to time you must get your team coming to you saying we should do this thing and how do you think about it? when they come to you with a really big number right you know we, we should spend yeah. I don't know, what is a big number six figures seven figures okay on something whatever this initiative might be you've got the sniff test stuff that we talked about earlier but mm. you know are you looking for you're looking for some kind of credibility around it but are you looking for some kind of I don't know, like ROI hurdle or how would they come to you effectively to get something like that? So, yeah, like you say, it depends on, it's like magnitude and confidence and confidence is through their ability to tell you, and like what framework are they going to put in place to tell you at the end whether it met the objectives? Like these are the objectives, this is how we're going to measure it. And then this is how I'll come back and tell you. And they have to overlay some sort of confidence of like, I'm pretty sure we'll be in some sort of range. And if I'm not sure, we should do a test that's smaller. Huge Hail Marys of like, we need 10 million quid to go and sponsor McLaren. Yeah. I struggle with, and to be fair, like I suggest that one and I have to like <laughs> internally check myself. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to think about these things, right? Especially when yeah. they're... Um, they're kind of one-offs, right? They yeah. can't test that kind of thing. No. And my confidence is not through, I don't believe it could work. It's that I don't know how to think about these things. So hopefully I did the exercise I'd expect my team to do, which was like to talk to lots of people, start writing some stuff down, and then where I had nervousness, challenge myself, and then almost like force-fitted to some sort of set of numbers. Like, right, the reason we would try to do this stuff would be to move awareness and awareness at this place, and then, and then you want to move awareness consideration. And like, you could build a funnel, and at some point I was like, I don't think sticking our logo on a car moving really fast it's probably the best use of our money right now. Disappointingly. Because I, I can raise awareness, but no one will know what we do for consideration because you've right. just got a logo. So, you know, if you're 
someone else. Google, everyone knows what Google does. And the teams, I think, have been able to operate in that confidence versus um, conviction spectrum quite well at certain budget levels. And a lot of the time, they do that pretty autonomously. Like, nothing comes to me, really. They make the call. You get told about it. Yeah, they're like, this worked, this has worked. Recently, we've made adventures in television where the capital cost mm-hmm. is higher. And yep. that has been a little bit around like being clear about the guidance on test budget. Like, mm-hmm. what are the yep. parameters? And some people like, test budget has to be within this ROI threshold. And I was actually, well, if it's less than the amount, it can be within any, if it fails completely, it's fine. Right. And, yep. and people just need to know that. Mm-hmm. But you can't tell me it failed because you have no idea how to assess whether it worked. Yeah, that's the wrong kind of failure. That's the wrong failure of like, how did it go? Don't know. I'm like, unacceptable. Yeah. If it's like, we measured all this stuff, da 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 da, with our confidence bounds, it was minus 50% ROI. I'm like, cool. That's fine. Yeah. Understood. Got it. What do we learn? Let's not do that again, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you did a lot of TV at Secret Scapes. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was not. It was Tom's sort of genesis of how mm-hmm. Secret Escapes approached uh, television. At the time, people were saying it wouldn't work, so Tom challenged that for like direct response. Yeah, yeah. They were like, "Oh, it won't work for a digital brand. You know, no one mm-hmm. does TV." Uh, Tom was like, "Really? I'm sure we can get this to work." But then also not thinking we were so arrogant, we knew how to do it, so mm-hmm. went externally for consultative uh, advice, which is what I do pretty regularly. I don't feel like. You should think you know everything and you should bring in experts where needed. So, yeah, TV was a huge success story for Secret Scopes. Kind of a fun channel. It's a terrifying channel for the capital costs. Mm -hmm. You can quickly re-edit a TV ad to make five different versions if you don't quite like what you got versus a banner. Yeah, yeah. But you can't just dip a toe. Yeah, you have to make an ad. And ads aren't cheap. So Yes, yeah. You mentioned kind of outside expertise. There's a kind of agencies or whatever. But also more generally, where do you learn? Who do you pay attention to? Are there podcasts you listen to or like books you'd recommend or, I don't know, email newsletters? Like, what's your thing? Podcasts are quite like uh, the news guys, the news agents, but that's not related to the industry. <laughs> uh, I quite like my current affairs. It's basically, I think, comp- like I've honed my Twitter to be my like hot pot of uh, what I need to know. Yeah. Dan Barker, like if you don't follow Dan, mm-hmm. love that guy. Surely everybody already follows Dan. Yeah, I assume so. I'll give a shout out to Fabrizio's uh, at PeshNet. I've got more interested in like commentators on like the more macro trends of um, growth businesses. So there's a guy called Wasteland Capital, who's great and mostly borrowed ideas. And there's a really interesting chap who's an engineer. Like I find, like finding people who are like in adjacent disciplines, who are experts and who are quite noisy. Uh, there's a guy called Gurgly, I'm going to say it wrong, or Slash. He was ex-Uber, and he's a really interesting chap talking about like engineering hiring and like what's going on in the engineering market as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I don't know, I feel like I've, I've tweaked my Twitter over 15 years to get to this point where it tells me what I need to know, I hope. The right blend of trolls and... Uh... Yes, exactly. I do follow everyone Donald Trump follows as well. I think it's very important. And I follow GB News. Because sometimes you don't notice, like, you discover how the filter bubbles can slowly permeate your brain and you don't really notice that you're reading avidly something from someone horrendously right wing (laughs) (laughs) you have to kind of check the source exactly oh my god it's this person (laughs) yeah i come from kind of the seo skew but i'm kind of interested in who the seo team to report to so it's that kind of level of like who's doing really interesting innovative work at that like leadership level 
like Tim at Ovo, I've often gone to him. He was ex-Thread and Spotify. Mm. I love the gang at Trainline. That's um, Joe McClintock, who's ex-Skyscanner. Oh, yeah. She's now at Trainline. You know, if you want to think about that blend where you go into, like, on the brand marketing side. Definitely. For me, like, the way I challenge myself is, like, I talk to people who are, you know, the CMO thing. There's no one flavor. Mm. And everyone is slightly biased one way. And I generally just go for counsel with people who are biased in different areas than I am. Yeah. For advice quite regularly. I think, Mm. again, you can't be, assume you know everything. Definitely. Yeah, it's really fascinating when you see people who come up through all the different strat- I think CMOs must be one of the more diverse background. Absolutely. People could be direct response or brand or all kinds of different things, or even kind of more from the modeling side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think there's a great, like, especially like measurement is always my like pet area. I love to debate with people. And there's such a good group of people who are thinking hard, but quite desperately about the problem. So, yeah, I spent some time last week with Nadia, who's running analytics at CarWow, ex-Google, great perspective in the world. Spent some time with a chap called Sam Barrows. He's a, he's a really fascinating dude. He's an ex-booking Uber data science. He's leading the okay. brand data science team at Airbnb because you're probably aware they declared zero investment in performance, all their investment mm-hmm. in brand, and they've got a very highly, highly functioning and very smart team trying to like work out how to measure that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I go cap in hand going, what have you learned? Please help me on like solve all these intractable problems. But it's definitely, as I said right at the beginning, I think it's one of your superpowers. Like you, all the time, I'm you'd be like incredibly good at connecting and bringing people together. And so it's no surprise that those people would answer the call or you know, reply to the email when you reach out to them. I think Alex at Meta was my sort of uh, role model on this, who out loud said, I love to connect people. If I ask, I'll always offer something back in return, like you can call on me anytime. And yeah. I think that's been quite a, just a powerful mantra to keep you discover like you just keep bumping into people who somehow over this like spider web of connections that slowly emerge in london or globally Mm. i think everyone's just generally quite generous with their time anyway so definitely they talk about it being the original superpower of silicon valley didn't they of right or going all the way back to the gang of however many it was that formed intel back in the day right back in the day Fairchild. yeah that because of the way that they were trying to escape that kind of east coast stereotype they wanted to be more relaxed and to you know, just hang out and swap ideas and all those yeah. kinds of things. And you know, California not allowing non-competes and things like that. Yes. There's, there's a whole yeah, yeah. load of those kinds of things, which just over, yeah, like you said, decades, forms that cross-pollination of ideas. and People. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you and I have, have operated in London, and it doesn't obviously have that exact history. Mm. But within the niches, within the, within the technology yeah, yeah. group, so certainly you feel that generosity and the number of people who've throughout my career have just been, exceptionally prepared to just hang out and answer my stupid questions it's phenomenal really yeah no, yeah i i've uh, learned so much and made better decisions through the gift of others people's time mm. helping me like shape my approach um, or even just spend some time solving a problem together because i think like nothing like getting concrete is that no no exactly like actually pick a problem and like work it through together and then hopefully uh, deliver a solution so yeah no there's a weird warm fuzzy feeling when those sort of moments happen when someone after a long period of time, connects with you again and uh, you get a chance to hang out again. Yeah, definitely. There's probably a good place to bring it to a close. Just on that brief tactical point at the end there, is there, for anybody like earlier career specifically, so maybe you hasn't built up our networks at this stage, do you have any tactical tips? Like how do you think about getting started if, if you're a 20-something 
just breaking in. I think you should, like, I know LinkedIn is, like, lame and basic, but <laughs> <laughs> you should be pretty uh, aggressive at anyone you meet. Definitely connect with them. Definitely agree with that. I think you should not be afraid to just find people you think are inspiring in the industry and contact them for time. If you're very clear about how you want to spend time with them or ask people to leverage their network for you. Again, if you are quite clear about how they would pitch that. So like, I would love you to introduce me to three people who look like this and I'm looking just for a five minute coffee. Yeah. Because I think, again, there's a bit of pay it forward that if you can help people at this stage through your network, at some point they might work for you or you might work for them. So. It's all interconnected. Yeah, so I think just don't be afraid to uh, get people who are further in their career to do a bit of legwork, whether it's coffees or doing introductions. Good call. Just be very precise about uh, what you want. What the actual ask is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. On that note, thank you for being so generous with your time. No, no, I absolutely loved it, dude. It's been uh, it's been a blast catching up, and uh, yeah, great conversation and. Uh, We'll catch up in person very soon with a bit of luck. Looking forward to it. I'll subscribe to the podcast and I'll smash the like button and I'll send it around. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe, dude. Cool. Catch up, man. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the business class lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend.